Kate's giving me a hard time for being late to class. <laughs> she walks in. Yeah, she walks in late. Man. All right. If the professor's more than five minutes late, we get a free walk. Yeah, I'm not a professor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray and we'll jump in, do a little bit of a review. God, thank you for who you are and how you care for us. Uh, and pray for uh, everything that's going on in our church building today and our church family for all the different classes and groups that are meeting. And uh, Thank you for especially the, the kids' teachers. God, I pray that you would give them grace and uh, <laughs> patience with the kids. And thank you for how they watch over and uh, pour into our kids. And God, as we open up the book of Mark this morning, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding and and that we would be able to uh, place everything properly in its uh, proper time uh, as we look at different authors of the Gospels and uh, just try to reconcile a timeline for ourselves in our minds. God, help us to understand not only the, the facts and the timeline, but what it is that you were going through in your, your final hours and uh, the, the pain and agony and grief that you underwent for us. God, we love and praise you. Amen. All right, so last week we were looking at the Garden of Gethsemane and the grief and agony of our Lord. Uh, why was Jesus in, in such agony while he was there in the garden? Why was he so grieved, having to go away three times and, and pray and ask him for his friend's help? And what was going on? Yeah, he, he's not ignorant of anything, right? Especially what was ahead for himself in that hour that he'd been looking forward to for so long. He, was, he really was truly human, and so the pain he felt was the same pain we would feel going through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nothing to look forward to. Some people are terrified of getting needles poked into them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what the intention was. It was. As much damage as they can without actually killing them is their purpose. Yeah. And even beyond the understanding of the physical pain that he would be enduring, the beatings and the crown of thorns on his head and being pierced through his hands and his feet, he had the, the weight of bearing the, the guilt and the sin of men, uh, that all the sin throughout human history would be placed on him, and he would be bearing that as a ransom for sin, as a curse uh, for all of our iniquities. That's, I think, what was really getting to him and, and causing him to just be in, in such grief and agony. Yeah, because we, we get very upset at Wrongly accused of something wrong, and we don't even know what it's like to be holy. Yeah. And the separation between him and his father. Yeah, God can't even look at sin. Uh, Revelation 21:27 is talking about heaven and says that nothing impure or unclean can ever enter it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, yeah, to have that, um, that sin on his shoulders, that's unimaginable. But as bad as the physical torture was, and it was bad, the wrath of God being poured out on him. Yeah. We can't even imagine that. Yeah, that not at all. I like the mystery of the cross we can't comprehend. <laughs> Very good, Jerry. <laughs> All right, and how do we know that Jesus didn't pay for our sins while bleeding in the garden? Or did he? And the cross would have been unnecessary if he had atoned for our sins or in the garden, right? Could just got up and went home. So 
Yes. Yeah, and we only read about him bleeding in the garden there in Luke twenty-two forty-four, I think, right? One place. And so the, just looking at the, the balance of verses and the amount of time and attention that's given to the cross versus him bleeding in the garden, it's wildly imbalanced. Uh, the cross is highlighted all throughout Scripture, right? We're told that that's what we are to boast in, is the cross. Yeah. Amen. Good. Yeah, even before Christ and his incarnation, we have glimpses into the fact that he would be raised up, that he would be pierced, not that he would just bleed in agony and terror, right? Yes. Perfect. Yep. And he had to die on the cross, not just believe. Good. Yeah, so first of all, the verse never says that he bled. It says that he sweat drops like blood. And, and maybe he could have bled, but we don't know that for sure. We can't say with certainty that he bled. Uh, and then, yeah, we have this wild imbalance of, of verses and attention given to the cross versus the garden. But most importantly is what Jim said, that bleeding doesn't atone for sin. Uh, the blood is a picture of the life that we have. Uh, life is in the blood, right? Leviticus 17. And he is pouring out his life for us. He is laying down his life for us. That's a penalty for our sin, not for him to get a paper cut and to bleed. That's not uh, propitiatory. That doesn't cover, it's not a satisfying payment for the wrath that God pours out on us, right? Well, especially, can be especially ironic, at least to me anyway, the, the people that teach that he in the garden, same people that teach that they were supposed to shed man's blood to, if a person was too far gone, they could still shed his blood by killing him mm-hmm. for his own righteousness, which of course is... Or at least their prophets teach that. I don't know how many people actually would, no, but, they but yes, they, they did. Good point. Anyway, so that's utter inconsistency. A lot of, pretty much all, non-Christian groups or parties or sects or cults or whoever it is, they're going to uh, downplay the cross, right? Either say it was, it's not a cross, it's a stake, or actually say that, no, Jesus didn't actually die on a cross, um, that he, he never suffered, he never died. Um, or to, like in this situation, just say, well, it's, it's just a, a picture of what we should follow. It's an example of what we should do. But really, the, the gravity of what took place took place beforehand in the garden. All of those different viewpoints downplay the importance of the cross. But Amy, as you pointed out, that's what Paul said he's going to boast in. He says, I'm not going to boast in anything except for the cross. If I have anything to boast in, I'm going to boast in my weakness and what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's where he paid our sins in full. That's where our penalty was finished at the cross. That's where he died. That's where he died, yeah. And we looked at this verse last week. I think this is the best verse to kind of summarize the importance of the cross. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins. He didn't bleed for sins. He died for sins. Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Steve, you had a question or comment? No? Steve, were you raising your hand? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the answer to the first question, why was Jesus in such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he bled at every four? So, but I, I know that that's not where he atoned for sins, but why did he bleed at every four? Well, in Luke 22, it says that he sweat drops like blood, or as blood. So we don't know if he actually bled, but uh, either way, whether it was sweat or blood, it was because he was bearing the weight of the sin of the world. So uh, he had a full understanding of the fact that he was about to go to the cross. He was to become a curse for mankind. 
And as that curse, he was going to be treated as a curse. He was going to be hung on a tree, and he was going to be in opposition to the Father, who can't be in the presence of sin, can't look upon sin. And so he was bearing the, the weight of not only the physical pain that he was looking forward to, but the uh, spiritual pain, that he was going to bear that sin upon himself. So... <clears throat> No, he paid for our sins on the cross, like that verse that I just read. Christ also died for sins once for all. So the cross, that's where this atonement is, that's where it takes place, at the cross. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, his, his agony began before that, his grief began before that, but the, the satisfaction to satisfy the wrath of God, that took place at the cross. If it weren't for the cross, yep, yep, that's good. In his body. Yep. Amen. As far as the beginning of it, that happened at the incarnation. We look at that as so cool, but it isn't cool at all for God to become man. That's so. Yeah. That's far worse than thinking that we can become a worm or a Yeah. Infinitely worse. Yep. All right. Good. All right, well, before we get into our text today, I want to talk about the foundation of law and order. What is the foundation of law and order? And it's not NBC or CBS, right? <laughs> it's not even the, the Constitution or the Magna Carta or the, uh, what is it, In- English common law. Uh, what is the foundation for law and order? God's holiness. All right, good. God's holiness. He is the standard for what is right and wrong. And where in Scripture can we find the foundation for God uh, giving the responsibility to man for law and order? Anybody familiar with that? Sam, I'm looking at you. You, a graduate of a dispensational school. Well, Okay, that's a good place to go. So God gave us a, a law, right, in the, the Ten Commandments, not only in the Ten Commandments, but uh, they were expounded upon and added to throughout the, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the law, right? But even before that, if we go back to Genesis, let's go back to Genesis 9. That's commonly known as the, the foundation for human government, God telling man that we are to govern. And so in Genesis 9, 4 through 7, so I'll throw this up there. God is the one who established human government. It's not um, something that was just made up, not something that came out of thin air, but God established it. And so I'll read for us in Genesis 9, verses 4 through 7. And if somebody could be making their way to Deuteronomy 16, we'll grab that hereafter. So Genesis 9, verse 4 says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So I went back a little bit further because we were just talking about that, right? How the blood is representative of life. Verse 5, surely I will require your life blood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So what commands there do we see for, for man? What expectations do we see that God has for man in those last couple of verses? All right, that's, that's the exciting one, right? <laughs> <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. That is a, a command that we see there in the text, right? What other expectation do we see from man? It's not quite as fun. Yes, so that's a, a negative 
command, right? You aren't to shed the blood of man unless what? Yes, unless they have already shed blood. So whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. So we see an expectation that God has there that man is going to stand up and exercise human government. That man is going to take responsibility for the, the punishment of wrongs that have been committed. So we see here just after the flood that God establishes this human government um, Remember that shortly before this, in Genesis 6.6, 6, we saw that God looked on the earth and that uh, he was grieved because man was not doing what they should be doing, right? They were only evil continually in their heart. Well, let's flip forward to Deuteronomy. Does somebody have that passage for us ready? Deuteronomy 16.18-20. All right, go ahead. Alright, so there in verse 18 we see at the beginning, you shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving to you. And so he's here kind of furthering the, uh, the bounds and giving more inclusion uh, in, in his instruction about how they're to judge and govern themselves. And so they're to set up these judges in, in each town that they have. And uh, we know, I got these uh, stats from John MacArthur. He lays them out in his commentary. And I went back and I tried to figure out um, to find original sources. And I had a short week of study. I tried to be done by Wednesday so I could enjoy the holiday and stuff. Uh, and I couldn't find anything. So I'm just going to give you these stats on the authority of John MacArthur, which I trust is good. So in a region that was greater than 120 heads of household, uh, they would have a, a council called the Sanhedrin that's made up of 23 men who were sitting together to judge uh, civil and moral matters. So if there was a, an issue within the town, they would bring that issue before these 23 men who would make up a, a Sanhedrin. If there was a region that had less than 120 heads of household, then they would have three, five, or seven elders chosen to rule within that smaller town. Uh, within those uh, elders or the, the rulers that would make up the Sanhedrin, there would be one chief ruler who would preside. And the high priest would make up that ruler in uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital, had a Sanhedrin of 71 men who would come together and they would act as the, judge, the judges of that city. So just like Deuteronomy 16, 18 said, to go into different towns and to establish judges, rulers, or, or leaders to act as a council. Um, these are the, the guidelines that we have for how that was to be done in each town or city, depending on how big that town or village or city was. Um, what sticks out to you about these different numbers? 23, 3, 5, 7, 71. What's that? No room for a tie. And what did you say, Jim? They're odd numbers. Uh, no, no, they're all prime numbers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, they are. They are odd numbers. Yes. Yeah, that's the importance, right? You can't have a, a tied vote, so um, there would be at least a majority in one group or another, and so people would bring their issues to these councils, to these tribunals, to the Sanhedrin, and they would figure out the, the issue and, and solve the problem, right? These courts were to guarantee several benefits. Uh, public trials, so there are no secret or hidden trials. This is really important even today, right? We want to know that we can trust the people who are making decisions. We want to know that we can uh, put trust in our system. That would be a nice thing to be able to do. Um, They're to guarantee self-defense or criminal defenders. Uh, Again, we see that even in 
our system today, right? We have a right to an attorney and part of the Miranda rights. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you at no charge. That's not necessarily in here, but a right to self-defense or a criminal defender. Um, they guarantee that we must be proving guilty on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you can't just have one person come and make an accusation and call them guilty, right? Um, believe all women, right? That's a recent trend that kind of goes against this must be proven guilty on the evidence of two or three witnesses, regardless of gender, right? And the crime for falsely testifying is equal to the sentence of the falsely accused, that the falsely accused faced. So if somebody were to falsely accuse somebody and the penalty for that accusation were to be murder, the person who uh, made that false accusation, their penalty should be not murder, um, death, that's what I meant. Um, then their penalty should be death. All right, let me redo this quote from John, John Grasmick. He says that Jesus was tried first by the righteous, by the religious authorities, the Jews, <laughs> and then by the political authorities, the Romans. This was necessary because the Sanhedrin did not have the power to exercise capital punishment, John 18, 31. Each of the two trials had three hearings. And so we're going to look at the first of those three trials today, the religious trials or the trials by the Jews. And so in all, Jesus will undergo a total of six trials by the time he's done. They're just going to be brief within a matter of hours, but he'll undergo these three Jewish or religious trials and then three Roman or civil trials. So the first Jewish religious trial is going to be before Annas. We'll read about that in John 18, 12 through 14, and 19 through 23. Uh, before Caiaphas, it's going to be the second trial. We'll read about that in our passage today in Mark 14, but additionally in Matthew 26, 57 through 68, and then before the Sanhedrin, Matthew 27, 1 through 2. Then the three Roman trials are going to be, we'll look at those here in a couple weeks, before Pilate in John 18, 28 through 38, before Herod in Luke 23, 6 through 12, and before Pilate, again, a second time before Pilate, John 18, 39 through 19, 16. So again, in total, there are six trials that Jesus underwent, and today we'll look at the first three, the Jewish trials or the religious trials that he's being tried for, uh, ultimately the sin of blasphemy. Any thoughts or questions before we jump into that first trial, the, uh, his appearing before Annas in John 18? Can you just keep it on that slide for a little bit longer? Yep, just for a little bit longer. And we'll actually have that same slide pop up a couple of times throughout the rest of our study this morning. Talking about a while ago, the, the law or the, the justification for death. Yeah. Because he said, when God told him to go, he said, well, people will try to kill me. There was an innate understanding because he killed his brother that people would want to kill him. Yeah, So good. It, it wasn't, may not have been a written law, but it was kind of, he understood it. Yeah, the law reigned even before Moses. So Moses didn't introduce this law, but yeah, we have this any understanding of right and wrong, right? God has written upon our hearts good and, and bad and right and wrong. Anyway, I'm sorry to backtrack. No, you're good. It's important. Genesis 1, 26, God said that man should rule over the creation. Mm-hmm. the word people do rule over there. Yeah, right from the very beginning, man had dominion over the, the animals and the creatures. Yeah. All right, we'll have that up here, and again, again in a minute if you guys need to get back to it. But for now, let's look at his first trial before Annas, and actually, we'll need to make our way to John 18, because Mark skips over this trial, so we'll 
pick up this first trial in John 18, verse 12. Or 13, is that what I have? I'll see what 12 says. I thought that's what the last page said. It is 12, so that at the top of that page, that's a typo there. So John 18, and I'll go ahead and read verses 12 through 14, then jump down to 19. It says, so the Roman cohort, remember this is right after we wrapped up last week. So last week, uh, he was in the garden. Uh, Judas shows up with his Roman cohort with the elders of the temple, and they're there to arrest Jesus, and he goes quietly, right? Peter, not so much. Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. I think uh, he gets to that in the same chapter. But here in verse 12, it says, So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And jumping down to verse 19, it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And the high priest there is in reference to Annas, even though it also references Caiaphas, who was a current high priest. This here is talking about Annas, who was the previous high priest. Verse 20 says, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, I have spoken wrong. If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him about to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right, so one of the first things we need to recognize here, and the text tells us that Annas wasn't acting high priest. So it says in verse 13 that he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Caiaphas was a high priest, and Annas, he had been a high priest for a handful of years, uh, some 20 years prior which should make him not high priest anymore, but he's still kind of acting in this role. And in fact, the fact that he was high priest at any point means that he should have been high priest for his entire life. So according to Jewish law, the high priest was to be a, a lifetime, a lifelong appointment. And that's not what was going on here. He used it as a, a political power, and he had this this position that he held for a number of years, and then he passed it along to one of his sons and then to another of his sons, and ultimately to five of his sons, they were all high priests, and then after that to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so he was uh, keeping it in the family so he could still kind of be in charge, he could still pull the strings from uh, behind the scenes and still have this power and this... Uh, ability to manipulate situations. Um, so he passed it along to, again, his five sons and then to his son-in-law, trying to keep it in the family. And remember when we were talking about Jesus going in and, and clearing out the temple and just the wickedness of the temple, how people were selling and buying and doing all kinds of wicked things within the temple, that whole system was referred to the bazaars of Annas. It was referred to as the bazaars of Annas. So he was the one who was orchestrating all of the buying and selling within the temple. He was running this whole corporation, really, uh, using his position, his once-held position as high priest as a means of influence and manipulation amongst the people. It's almost like he was a, a crooked, corrupt CEO of a, a corporation that's just filled with nepotism. And uh, now Jesus comes on the scene and he is threatening to disrupt this whole empire that he has built for him. Because remember, Jesus just barely earlier this same week that he's being crucified, he went in and he turned over the tables and he said, this is my father's house, my father's house is not a, a den of robbers, you guys need to knock it off. And even before that, his teaching and uh, his morality is being spread all throughout uh, Israel as a whole. And it's starting to threaten uh, Annas's empire, his corrupt empire that he's building. 
we see in the text that this trial took place at Annas' own house, which, uh, once again, according to John MacArthur, I wasn't able to track this down. He says that was against the rules that was supposed to take place within the temple. And we know that Jesus, uh, he went there and he taught, right? Luke tells us that he would go to the temple and he would teach by day, and at night he would go to the garden, or not to the garden, he would go to the, the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is within the, the Mount of Olives. And he would stay there at night and go back to the temple in the morning. And so Jesus had a lot of influence within the temple. And so it makes sense that they wouldn't go back to the temple to perform this trial, but instead he would do it illegally within his own house. And Jesus was asked to testify against himself. And that's not according to law, right? They're supposed to have evidence to bring before somebody who has been um, accused of a crime. You don't call for the, the accused and tell them that they need to testify against themselves. Again, we see this in our own Miranda rights, right? You have the right to remain silent. Um, that didn't start with the, the Constitution or the, the Bill of Rights. That has roots and foundations far preceding it. Um, so we see in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in temples where all the people come together. I spoke nothing in secret. And I like this. Jesus gets, uh, I wanted to say lippy. That has negative connotations, but he's, he's pretty straightforward with him, right? He says, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoken to them. They know what I have said. So Jesus isn't hiding anything. Everything he said, he said out in the open. And he's telling uh, Annas, this uh, pseudo high priest, how to do his job. You need to go and question these other people. That's the, the proper method. That's the proper uh, way to go about these things. You don't bring in the, the convicted criminal and question him. All right. Additionally, we see that, uh, or we're told, um, again, from... John MacArthur, and I'm leaning on his authority, that trials were to take place in the daytime. And this trial was taking place in the middle of the night. We know that from the text, right? This was taking place in the middle of the night, uh, which we can just uh, infer from common sense. That's not okay, right? That's not above board. That's not the proper way to do things. But apparently that was on the books, that trials were to take place in the day and not in the middle of the night. Um, and then... Lastly, we see that there was to be, or yeah, again, from John MacArthur, there was to be one full day between sentencing and death, which, once again, from a common sense perspective, makes sense, right? You don't want to have an accusation and a, a sentencing and then just within a matter of hours put that person to death in case more evidence comes to the forefront. Um, you want to be able to take time to respond to that evidence to take that into account. Any thoughts or questions on this first trial before Annis? All right. Well, we will move to the second trial, the trial that is that our text is focused and based on today, the trial before Caiaphas. And before we actually get back to Mark, we haven't even been in Mark yet. So before we get to Mark for the first time, uh, Let's go to Matthew, and uh, we'll read this account, and then we will march our way through Mark, which is a, a parallel account. Could I get somebody to read for us? Matthew 26, 57 through 68. That's the account that Matthew has for us of this trial that Jesus has before Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas. So he is, the, at this point, the current acting high priest. So the trial before Annas didn't go super well. He sends him off to Caiaphas, and that's where we pick up the story. Somebody have Matthew 26, 57 through 68? Jerry? Okay, go ahead. Through 68, you said, right? Yes, please. All right. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders he gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards 
deceived men. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, the last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard it from or you have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some of them slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Hmm. It's pretty sickening, isn't it? Alright, so that's Matthew's account. Let's go ahead and turn to Mark and we'll look at this parallel account and walk through it together. So Mark fourteen. And in verse 53, we see Mark start his account of the same trial before Caiaphas that we just read about in Matthew. It says there that they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. So all these religious leaders, they are already gathered together from the previous trial uh, well into the night. And both Matthew and Mark specify that they didn't have any testimony Yet They didn't have any evidence against Jesus yet, and they were trying to dig and uh, searching for this testimony, search, or fabricating this, this evidence against Jesus. It says in 54 that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. We'll get to Peter next week. We're just seeing that he was there. He was uh, kind of back in the shadows. He was watching for now. 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. Again, this isn't how trials are supposed to work, right? You have the, the evidence come forward. You have a, a prosecutor who's uh, kind of compiling all this evidence. You don't have them going out during the trial and, and asking for witnesses to come forward. They shouldn't be trying to find this evidence after having arrested Jesus, after having dragged him there to what is now his second trial. Um, and the testimony that they did have, we're going to find, was not consistent with um, amongst itself. The people testifying weren't consistent with each other. 56 says, For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. It was uh, going against each other. 57 said, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days it will build another made without hands. And so, uh, both in, in Matthew and Mark, uh, both these testimonies name Jesus as one who is stepping in and destroying the temple. Do you see that in 58? It says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. Uh, Matthew says a similar thing. And um, in, in Matthew it says, I am able to destroy this testimony. But here in Mark it says, I will destroy this testimony. So those are this, test, this temple. Thank you. Um, yeah, I will destroy this temple. Um, and Matthew said, I am able to destroy this temple. So those two testimonies are not exactly the same. Um, and neither one of them are true. We have uh, this verse in John 2, which seems to be probably what they're drawing from. This was early on in Jesus' ministry, so probably some three years earlier. In John 2, 19 through 21, it talks about Jesus speaking of his body, and he says that you will destroy this temple, and three days later, I will raise it up again. So he's talking about how they are going to destroy his body, which is what they're literally in the process of doing, like while they're giving this false testimony. 
And speaking of his body, he's saying that he will raise it up in three days. And so they're, they're just taking these old, twisted memories that they can't even uh, remember correctly and, again, fabricating this false testimony against Jesus, trying to look for a reason to put him to death. And this really shouldn't be a surprise to us. Looking back and remembering back in Mark 4, I think it's 11 and 12, um, when Jesus is talking about the parables, he says in Mark 4.11, well, it says in Mark 4.11, that he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And so all the while, while Jesus is teaching these things, even back in John chapter 2 about the destruction of his body, about the destruction of the temple and how they were going to come and uh, destroy the temple and he will raise it up three days later. They, they didn't get it. They weren't seeing. They were seeing and not perceiving. They were hearing and not understanding. And we have evidence of that even here at Jesus' trial that the, the testimony that's being brought up against him to kill him isn't consistent because people weren't hearing it clearly. They weren't perceiving it as... He was, um, as he had intended for the disciples to perceive it. He definitely had intention for them to misperceive it. And then jumping down into verse 60 of Mark 14, it says that, I guess I skipped 59 to 9. It says, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So verse 60, the high priest, this is Caiaphas now, stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? So in verse 60, Jesus refuses to answer. Uh, he remains silent. And we see this prophesied all the way back in Isaiah 53. Um, let's see if I can... Grab that real quick. Isaiah 53, 7 talks about uh, how he was as a lamb going before its shears. It says, Upon a high and lofty mountain. No, that's 57. That's not the right verse. 53, 7. There we go. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And so we see that here, that uh, these high priests are calling for Jesus to testify against himself illegally, and he's not going to do it. He's staying there, and he's being silent. He's telling him, you go out, and you find these people that I spoke to openly out in the synagogue, out in the temple, did it on a daily basis for three years, you go find them. And he is remaining silent at this point. But we see at the the latter part of verse 61, that the high priest asks him another question. It says, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And this is a, a different question. He's not asking him for testimony against himself. He's not asking him to um, indict himself or to give evidence of any sin or crime that he's committed. He's asking him if he is a Christ. And in verse 62, Jesus said, I am. Ego me, the same words that he used back in the garden when uh, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, yeah, that, that's me. I am. I am Jesus. And they all fell down to the ground. And he uses the same phrase again. Jesus said, I am. I am the son of God. I am the Christ, the blessed one. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he even goes farther than just using the tetragrammaton, the, uh, the set aside, the holy name of God. He says, yes, I am, period, right? I am God. I am without beginning, without end. I am uh, the, the Alpha and Omega. And then he says, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's referencing uh, Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13, these messianic prophecies that have been written for hundreds of years, he's refer referring to them as being about himself, and they will be fulfilled in him. 
And he's referring to his, his second coming and how they're going to be raised up. They're going to witness these things. They're going to see that he, in fact, is this son of man, that he has this power and authority that's going to um, be on display for all to see. Um, there we go. So he's quoting Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 17. And then the, what is the, the reaction, the response that we see from Caiaphas? How does he respond to Jesus saying, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in power and glory? <laughs> he did kind of lose it, right? And yeah, he, he tore his, his robes, right? Because he understood what Jesus was saying. Even though, uh, looking back to Mark 4.11, right? He was only going to speak truth to those that he wanted to speak truth to, uh, to allow them to see the truth that he was speaking. He was speaking truth all the time. But to allow them to see, he was seeing it here. Caiaphas had a full understanding of what it is that, that Jesus was saying. In verse 63, it says that tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? So he understood what Jesus was saying. He just didn't believe what he was saying. He understood that Jesus was making claim to uh, be the Messiah, but he wasn't buying it. He was writing it off as blasphemy and neglecting to realize the fact that he was standing before the incarnate godly universe. Yeah, he's just looking for an excuse. And so, yeah, I don't think that he's like truly saddened. Like, this man is taking my God's name in vain. Uh, let me tear my clothes because this is such a, a grievous thing. He's putting on a show because he's looking for this evidence and uh, just trying to play the part, I think. Yeah, it was illegal for the high priest except for in the case of blasphemy. If somebody was blaspheming against their God, then that's the, the one occurrence where they, yeah, they had the, the allowance to tear their clothes. And so, and maybe he got excited. I get to tear my clothes today. So, <laughs> But I guess what they would do is they would just sew up their clothes again, uh, like a, an undergarment, and then they would tear it again someday. So yeah, it really, it's all crazy and weird and yeah it's just a, a show okay, it's not like they're truly upset that the name of their god is being blasphemed yeah yep Again, in John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, when Jesus says he is the Son of God, people understood what that meant, that he was making claim to deity. He was making himself equal with God. And it says that in the text. And so they picked up stones to stone him. And so, yeah, he knew exactly what it was to be the Son of God, is not to be different from God or lesser than God. No, he was making himself equal with God by that saying. And, yeah, good point. He's making that here. Yeah. Maybe if Rome wasn't there. 
maybe if he actually did come in and he did establish his kingdom and gave them what they were looking for, then they would say, oh yeah, of course you're the Messiah because you came in and the government is upon your shoulders. And so you have to be the Messiah. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for the, the second coming of Christ where he was coming in with the, a scepter and he was ruling with an iron fist. But that's not what they were seeing. So, But of course there's a whole spiritual aspect to it too that God has to open up their eyes. And so Jesus was preaching so they would see and not perceive. So they would hear and not understand. Um, so, yeah, those, those two aspects. Is that what you were asking? Like if they would ever? Yeah, that's good. But then okay. already said they really don't care. Remember when, uh, who was the teacher, Paul's teacher? Gamaliel. Yeah. He, he addressed him and said, you need to be careful here. Uh-huh. Are you going to find yourself opposing God? Yeah. And they just said, we don't care. We won't kill him. Yeah. He's, he's trying to unseat us, and we want to kill him. And so they, they, they really weren't seeking God in any of this. It seems that they were probably, in large part, just atheists, right? That was just their job. Their job was high priest, and they weren't really expecting God to. Uh, you know, they, they, mm-hmm. they were well off. They were doing well. Even though the Romans were over them, they yeah. were doing well. The people were suffering. Yeah, they were partners with the Romans. And they didn't want to be unseated. And, uh, and that's what they told him. You know, we don't care. And that's not the quote, but they basically said, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> we want to kill him. Pride of life is strong, right? Jerry? The judge? Two guys that died. The poor man and... Oh, Luke 16. Lazarus and the rich man. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't listen to Moses. And they're trying to kill him too. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very wicked. Yeah. Sin makes us very blind indeed. Also, most of these guys, the high priest. Sadducees, yeah. So they didn't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection anyway. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, it was kind of split. I don't even know how you can be religious and not have. <laughs> yeah. <Look> around you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> inconsistent, isn't it? All right, let's wrap up this passage. 64 and 65 says, you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's crazy. All of them, right? 65, some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Not only beating him physically, but mocking him. Uh, they condemned him and began to beat him. What wickedness. All right, so we've looked at the first of these two trials, uh, Jesus before Annas in John 18, and Jesus before Caiaphas, both in Matthew 26 and here in Mark 14. And let's wrap up with this third Jewish religious trial, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Um, we'll see a, a little bit of this in Mark 15, 1, and then we'll look at Matthew 27, 1 and 2. So Mark 15, 1, jumping down a little bit, says, Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and scribes of the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So that's a little bit of a briefer version of than Matthew's account. Matthew's account's two verses, but we don't have a whole lot on this trial 
of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. In Matthew 27, 1 and 2, it says, Now when morning came, so this is after his trial before Annas, after his trial before Caiaphas, says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And so we see that this trial took place in the morning, presumably as an attempt to adhere to the law. So they were supposed to meet during the morning, during the day, not at night. And so after having these two kind of pseudo trials, they come together for a third, just really um, brief trial to try to make things appear kosher, right? For all these Jews. Um, and then also notice that the chief priests and the elders, they were already present because they had been there for these other previous trials. They didn't call them all together. They didn't call them together in the temple like they were supposed to. They just had this really quick trial to make things look legit. And so what did they decide to do here? They decided they were going to put him to death. They found him guilty of blasphemy and they decided that he is worthy of death. And the Old Testament actually has a, a provision for capital punishment for, um, for blasphemers. Any guesses as to what the, the prescribed method of this capital punishment was to be in the Old Testament? Stoning, right? So they had this provision. Leviticus 24, 15, and 16 says, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And so Leviticus 24, 15, and 16 say that blasphemers should be stoned. But John 18, 31 says that the Jews were not permitted to put anyone to death. And so the Jews, they weren't adhering to this Old Testament guideline that they had for blasphemers. They were ignoring that altogether. Remember at the end of Matthew 23, just on the third day of Passion Week, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, how, I, how I weep for you, how I long for you. In, Math, in Mark, rather, Mark 6, 34, that's where we read that Jesus felt compassion for the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So their shepherds, their spiritual leaders, their uh, the Sanhedrin, right, the the high priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're supposed to be the ones who are leading Israel in a religious respect, and they're not. They have abdicated their responsibility. They've abandoned their post, and uh, their uh, inability or their lack of desire to actually fulfill this law to stone blasphemers is just one piece of evidence of that fact that they have uh, abdicated that responsibility as shepherds over Israel. Uh, so the religious leaders abandoned their responsibility to lead, and now they're looking to even pass the buck to Caesar. So they didn't lead Israel in the way that they should have, and now they're not even willing to take a leadership role in this crooked decision to crucify their Lord, but instead they're going to hand him off to, to Caesar, to Pilate, so that he can fulfill this wicked role for them on their behalf. And so, again, here are the six Jewish trials. If you miss those, you need to jot those down. Um, the crucifixion of our Lord and going through these six crooked, twisted trials. Um, it's so wicked. There's never been a, a greater injustice in all of history than Jesus, the most innocent person ever, taking uh, the the sins of the world upon him being crucified in this very wicked way. And we could ask ourselves, why is it that this is going on because of money, because of Annas and his desire for money, because of pride of the, the people, uh, because of Satan and his influence uh, entering into Judas? There are a number of different reasons, um, but ultimately it's all God's plan and his providence. Yes? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Amen. 
<laughs> exactly. I'll close with this verse from Acts 4, 27-28. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, we'll get to next week, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Ultimately, it's all in, in God's hands. All right, well, we are past time, so let's fellowship and we'll meet back together in a moment.